Hi, everyone. It's that time of the bi-weekly period again, where we talk about the most obscure horror films and horror-adjacent films that we can find. You're listening to Certified Forgotten. I am, I say this every time, I haven't figured out a better way to say it. I'm going to say it again. One half of your Matt host, Matt Monagle. I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Matthew something Donato. How you doing, buddy? Doing good, and I'm, I'm more accepting of the half comparison episode by episode. So you're wearing me down one by one. Don't worry. Continuity is important. You never know which episode people are going to jump into. What's old to us is new to them. You know what I mean? Old us is old to us and new. I don't know. I don't want to think about that right now. Never mind. Fair enough. Uh, so if this is your first episode of Certified Forgotten, <laughs> you, you chose an interesting one to jump in on. So good for you. Second of all, um, this is a show where we try and dig through some of the most recent uh, about the last 20 years of horror films, the Rotten Tomatoes period in film criticism, and talk about some of the movies that have five or, or fewer reviews. And what this really is, is our opportunity to delve a bit into some of the stuff that either didn't get enough attention or did get some attention, but that attention did not stand the test of time. This week's movie is, it, it's a lot. There's going to be a really good conversation there, and it definitely qualifies across the board for what we're trying to do. And we didn't bring just anybody to talk about this. This was handpicked for us by today's special guest who Matt Donato was going to introduce right the fuck now. Right the fuck now. I'm about to introduce one of one of my longstanding Fantastic Fest, uh, actually, housemates. And also, you know her work from the AV Club where she has been covering pretty much just about everything. So uh, you know her as Katie Reif. Katie, say hello. Hello, it's me, Katie Reif. <laughs> that is who you are. Yes. <laughs> So, Kay, I have to say that out of all the guests we've had on the show, you're probably the person that I've been reading for the longest period of time. Um, oh, thank you. It's great to be able to have you on here and kind of talk about stuff. And I know you're excited about this one, too, because while this is specifically, you know, we we tend to talk a lot about like straight horror or even kind of like, don't kill me, elevated horror on this particular show. <laughs> you know, the, the mandate that we have is pretty broad and I, I, you've tested it today and I'm really super excited about that. So we're going to get into all of that in a minute. Um, I want to say, I want to save our conversation about the film and I want to start by talking about you actually, because, you know, I have seen a lot of our, your interactions on Twitter. I followed you for a long time. We've had some conversations on there, but I think of you as a horror person, but I don't actually know kind of your own personal origin story with the genre. So talk to me about the early days. Like what, what were those first couple of films or media that made you think like, oh, this horror genre, weird genre stuff is, is kind of for me. Well, my hor my origin story is actually very specific because my parents, uh, I grew up in a household where we were not allowed to watch horror movies. Um, and for me, that only increased the sort of uh, appeal of the whole thing. I was, I've always been not a, not, I'm not always a contrarian, but if someone tells me I can't do something, I go, well, I'm gonna. You know, I, I always tell people I'm a punk kid in my soul, you know, like a moody punk teenager smoking behind the high school. That's that's me. That's my essence. And in this in this scenario, the high school is film and behind the <laughs> high school is horror. Am I, am I understanding the analogy correct? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, um, yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies when I was a kid, but we, uh, you know, we did watch a lot. Sci-fi was actually the genre that was big in my household. My dad's a big sci-fi fan. So, but I have a lot of memories of going to the video store and looking at boxes and posters of movies that I wasn't allowed to watch and just being fascinated by them. Um, I particularly remember the box for Motel Hell and the poster for The Ice Cream Man. Those were two movies that definitely caught my imagination as a young person. But the first horror movie I ever saw was The Shining, 
because it was the only horror movie my parents had on VHS. And I was a latchkey kid. So I had, you know, um, about two hours at home by myself every afternoon. And I would just sit and watch The Shining every single afternoon after school, make myself a snack, sit down and watch The Shining, and then just pick up wherever the movie left off the next day. Just watch it over and over and over again. <laughs> I like that, actually. I, I It wasn't a horror film, but I had a... Back in my movie theater days, uh, right after high school, I had one, you know, back in the old iPods, you only had room for one film. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was gross point blank. I would just like, I could only fit the one movie on there. So I would just watch it. And then when I ended my shift, I'd stop watching it and pick it up whenever. So I appreciate the one dedicated repeat watch. It's a good move. Yeah, I've seen The Shining. It's one of the only movies that I can, you know, I know by heart. I know every minute of that movie (laughs) upside down and backwards from watching it so much. And then uh, the next horror film I remember watching was the silence of the lambs at a sleepover. And that one freaked me out really bad, but you know, the more I was freaked out by stuff, the more intrigued I was by it. And so by the time, you know, I was a pretty rebellious kid. I was a punk kid in high school. So by the time I got to college, I was, you know, just pretty on this mission to do everything that I wasn't allowed to do when I was younger it's a whole backstory. My parents became born again when I was like uh, 12 or 13. And so I had kind of a rough teenage years because I, I had already decided that I wasn't on board with that. And so it was kind of a rough time. And so I was pretty rebellious around the time. And horror movies were part of that. It was part of me rebelling against my uh, my youth and my upbringing. And so by the time I got to college, um, Kill Bill Volume 1 came out while I was in college. And I was just enraptured with that film. Again, not a horror film, but it's genre. I was just in love with it. I was enraptured. I went and saw it three times in one week in the movie theater. And uh, after that, I got really into uh, Japanese cinema. Uh, Meiko Kaji, she's still one of my favorite actresses in Lady Snowblood and the Female Prisoner Scorpion movies and things like that. I got into her. I got into like 70s Japanese uh, genre films. And this was actually during the heyday. This was early 2000s. So it was the heyday of J-horror then. And so I just sort of had a special affection for Japanese films since then. I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to call myself an expert in it, but it's a type of film that I really do like. And that's sort of what leads us to the film we're talking about today, actually. Mm. I was going to say, my introduction to uh, Japanese horror was like Tokyo Gore Police and that road. So I went right in like the deep end with Japanese extreme horror and yeah, like, I wait. Yeah, I dove right in and I stayed there for a while. I'm talking like <laughs> Frankenstein versus like Vampire Girl, like mm-hmm. Suicide Swim Club of the Undead, like these things and I, as a as a budding horror fan. Like that was really funny, too. I still hadn't had like my stance planted in horror even yet. But mm-hmm. one of my friends like, yo, you, you want to watch this shit? And I'm like, yeah. And so that was like actually one of my formative experiences, like getting into horror. And now that I think about it, that might explain why I've gravitated over the years towards like gorier stuff and towards more practical effects, because there is just so much fun to be had with a movie like Tokyo Gore Police. That's all practical. It's all goopy. It's all ridiculous, like appendages and these like wiggly little monster things. And it doesn't always look great, but God damn it, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And right, like you said, there is a sense of fun, even in the really gory movies, but uh, that's sort of different because like my shit was like uh, um, uh, Suicide Club and Battle Royale right. and Pulse and Dark Water and stuff like that. The more serious kind of uh, J-horror. Although uh, Suicide Club, that's the director. His name's escaping me right now, but he went on to make Love Exposure. He's sort of yeah, a... See, it's Sono, right? 
Yeah, yeah, Cyan yeah. Sonar, that's it. <laughs> and he he's a a plus weirdo himself. Cyan Sono, A plus, top of the top of the heap, man. <laughs> that's uh do you know Jenny Nolf? Do, do you know the name? I do indeed. Yeah, Jenny is a huge uh, Sono fan, and we had her on to talk uh, hair extensions X day. Oh, great! So uh, we we basically had a whole episode devoted to the weirdness of Sion Sono, and if you would uh, like to go back to that, listeners, re- listen to the uh, hair extensions episode. We'll call back right there. Oh, I love it! Yeah, I ended up uh, a few years after I graduated college. I ended up living in Osaka for a year teaching English. Oh wow! So it was sort of this whole big life journey that was part of my early twenties. Well, let me ask, because you talked about the the career thing. I'm going to use that as a jumping off point. Um, When did you start to write about film? When did that become something that, you know, you realized, A, that you could do, that you were good at, and B, something you might be able to make a career out of? Well, I I was writing since I was a very little kid. I actually got in trouble in second grade uh, because I wrote, we were supposed to write a ghost story for Halloween. (laughs) And I wrote this like really like gothic macabre story about this bride like committing suicide on her wedding night and haunting this, you know, the moors of the like she jumped, throws herself off a cliff and then the cliff's haunted. And I remember my uh, teacher called my mom in for a meeting to discuss. First, she thought I had plagiarized it. And then my mom was like, no, she's just like that. <laughs> the teacher was concerned about my my mental health. So, um, I've been writing since I was a little kid and I've been a morbid weirdo since I was a little kid. Uh, so I, I started writing seriously to answer your question in college. I had a professor, her name was Ruth Bradley. She taught experimental film and she really encouraged me. She pulled me aside and said, well, some of the, you know, film analysis papers you're turning in are publishable. And I was like, oh, really? And she encouraged me to send my stuff out and I started writing, you know, I couldn't get into it right away because I didn't really have the like financial resources to for to do an unpaid internship when I came out of school. So I started writing for a website that definitely no longer exists called gogoray.net in the mid 2000s. And then I started working for the Chicago International Film Festival, writing copy for their catalog for the free uh, movie tickets. And I did that all from probably about 07 through 2012. I did that off and on. And then uh, and then I was I took a little break from writing because first of all, because I went abroad. And then after that, I was involved in a video group called Everything is Terrible. And so I was doing a lot of found footage video work for a while. And uh, so I, I wasn't writing as much during that time. But so there was like, the, you know, the sort of chaotic period where I quit my job and I was working in a video store and not making a lot of money. And sort of making found footage films over here and programming film screenings over here and writing film reviews over here and just doing a little bit of everything in this world. And uh, I, in 2014 was when I, <laughs> 2012, I got a job at MrSkin.com. And so my first professional gig as a writer was writing um, titty puns. That's how I cut my teeth as a writer. I did that for a year. Uh, I first went to Fantastic Fest, credentialed for MrSkin.com. Thank you, Fantastic Fest. They were one of the only festivals that would credential me for that website. Shocking. Yeah, because, I, I, well, I really just wanted to be a film critic. You know what I mean? I really wanted to be a film critic, but, like, this was this is what the job that I could get at the time with no experience. And I worked there for a year, and it was okay. I like to tell people I got harassed a lot more when I worked at restaurants than I did when I worked at Mr. Skin. 
you know, all the guys I worked with were very professional, but it was all guys. And so it wasn't very sustainable. Then I wrote a book called uh, If You Like Quentin Tarantino, which is just sort of a a guide to beginner's guide to grindhouse films. And uh, a year after that, I got a job at the AV club. So I didn't to, uh, I didn't get paid. Writing wasn't my full-time job until I was 31 years old. That bodes well for me. Cause I just turned 31. Is this my year? There you go. <laughs> Is this really my fucking year? <laughs> Holy shit. Possibly a lot of stuff turns a corner when you turn 30, you just have to keep at it. That's what I tell people all the time. It is way, way too late for me. It's way too late for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's not too late at all. It's no, it's never too late. Well, so I have a question going back to your found footage days and when you were Mm -hmm. actually creating. And I mean, one of the things I always think about is I'm a film critic who never went to film school. I didn't even go to like creative. I didn't take creative writing classes and stuff like that or journalism classes. So like I come from a business background. And I am strictly like evaluating films just on my knowledge of what I've learned as I've gone. And I do have some friends in the film industry who I just basically ask all these questions. I want to like learn the filmmaking side of things. But so as someone who's created and then someone who jumps back into film criticism and, you know, like writing from a mentality of being a critic versus being a creator, is it ever hard to separate that? Like, are you ever watching a found footage film and you're going like, I know how hard this is to make versus what actually you're watching? (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, both, I think I can appreciate how hard it is to make, but it doesn't um, diminish my ability to look at it as a critic. It sort of enhances it, I think. Um, like, uh, because that was we didn't film anything, you know, we didn't shoot. It was all uh, it was all um, collage from existing sources. So the whole thing was uh, we were the first found footage collective. There were groups before us, you know, there was a uh, TV carnage and lost and found movie night. And you can go all the way back to Craig Baldwin, you know, uh, assembling films out of other films is a concept that's been around for quite a while. Joe Dante's the movie orgy came out in 1969. You know, we didn't invent anything, but we were the first ones to have a website. So we launched a website in 07 or 08. I forget when it was, but it was a while ago. But we were the first ones to get on the internet. And this is when Tim and Eric was coming up too. And our specialty was we would take stuff that we had found on VHS tapes at the thrift store and sort of, you know, uh, chop and screw them and take all the good parts and mix them up and try to uh, create comedy out of uh, the raw materials that way. So... I mean, I don't know anything about cameras. I don't know anything about lighting, but I do know quite a bit about editing. And I can tell when a movie has good editing or bad editing based on that. And specifically when I watch a found footage thing, I am very picky about those. (laughs) There's one that I saw recently that I thought was extremely well done. I'm going to plug it. It's called Ask Anybody. And it is a found footage film made out of uh like hardcore uh gay hardcore movies from like the 70s and evan oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah evan perchell i think is how you say it um but he made that one and he did an excellent job he's trying to find a streaming platform for it right now but yeah i guess to answer your question i it enhances it more than anything so let me ask, um, talking a little bit because the film criticism background, you've got the filmmaker or at least film editor background um, that kind of informs how you approach movies. But, you know, you've been so plugged into the festival scene um, for so mm-hmm. many years now and, and part of your discovery process and seeing stuff that may or may not ever see the light of day here. 
know, how has, how has that experience of being able to go to smaller regional genre festivals been on juries before for some of these as well? How, how does that shape kind of how you interact with, uh, with genre cinema as a whole? Well, it's been absolutely instrumental. Genre festivals and Fantastic Fest in particular have been like, I wouldn't have the career I have now if it wasn't for Fantastic Fest. That's where people first started to notice me. And that's where I first started to meet people. And uh, it didn't get me my job at AV Club. That was just because they're in Chicago and I'm in Chicago. But like, it's absolutely instrumental. I think if you're an aspiring writer, if you can figure out a way to get to the festivals or if there's a genre festival in your city, I think it is absolutely 100% worth going to them. Um, in terms, mostly what happens with my job as a critic, because I don't just do horror, I do general um, general film reviewing. Like, you know, I, I reviewed Once Upon a Time on Hollywood and Little Women last year. You know, it's not all horror. but And I also write about music and TV sometimes. Uh, but you have to be a generalist nowadays, but, um, how it usually works with my job. As, so what happens is, is I see a movie at a genre festival and what happens usually is that I'll see a movie and I really like it. And I play cheerleader for that movie until it comes out. And then I say to my editor, I'll be so mad at you if you don't give me this movie to review. <laughs> That's mostly how it, uh, influences my job that I have now. That's yeah. I I've I know that exact feeling. <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> I saw this. I it better come out. Oh look, it is coming out. You all better go see this. And remember, I'm the one that told you this. Yeah, I've been tweeting this shit for six months. <laughs> yeah, give yeah, me my know. credit. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> it's it's more just excitement. You know, you see stuff that's really exciting. Yeah. One of my favorite Fantastic Fest memories was seeing Raw. At, at Fantastic Fest, and it, it just blew my mind, and I just loved it, and I just sang its praises up and down, you know, for months after that. Yeah, and I mean, the, the short version of how Certified Forgotten even came to begin is me and Monagle talking about exactly what you're saying, those smaller films that you champion for so long, and then maybe they don't even get the distribution, and maybe they never get the hits that they should have, and it, I mean, that's exactly why we created this. The reason why we brought this up was because Monagle and I were talking about a festival we were both at, and we we're like, we saw some pretty cool movies at that festival. Whatever happened to those? And we realized no one talked about them. There's like a few reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and we were like, huh, we should talk about them on a podcast. Oh fuck, <laughs> <laughs> that does happen sometimes. Uh, per, all you, sometimes the path is really strange, though. Um, this movie, The Wretched, is you know obviously global the biggest the biggest movie in america right now the wretched right. you're you talking believe about it? yes can you but like i saw that and it just i thought to myself maybe this is the silver lining of covid is movies like the wretched will actually get mainstream attention heck yeah because that would have went right ifc midnight that would have just coasted under the radar for for most general viewers i mean the genre community would have known about it but even at that it would have been 50-50, I think, for The Wretched, you know, even like a generic title. It's just The Wretched. Okay, cool. What's it about? So, yeah, no, I the fact that it's what over $300,000 now in drive-ins and is officially like the highest grossing film for the last few weeks fucking kicks ass. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, you know, terrible situation overall, obviously. But... Of course, we do, we do not wish to extend this for more films to do the same thing The Wretched did. But also, wait, I, we, I should date it. It's May 28th. So as of May 28th, it is one of the highest grossing. We don't, when this episode posts, it may be a different horror film than Drive-Ins. 
I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if we could post this episode in October and that number, like there won't have been a lot of movement on Mm. what the highest grossing movie theater film of the year is. I'm sorry to say. So I, I appreciate you date stamping it, but I think, I think that's a pretty evergreen statement. Doing my due diligence here, just making sure we're good. (laughs) I like it again, the rigor. Well, we're, we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the movie that Katie brought for us. And actually it's a lot of the, th- a lot of the talks, she said this ahead of time, a lot of the talking points she's been bringing up, I think it's going to weave together pretty nicely. So stick with us. This is going to be a good one. You know, we say this every week, but we really couldn't do what we do here at Certified Forgotten without the support of our patrons. And this week we have uh, two patron statements to read, one of which I'm excited about, the other I'm less excited about, but in order to understand why, I think you'll have to let, uh, let Donata do the reading. So, my good friend, will you will you please, in any order that you see fit, read our statements today? I'm going to save the not as fun one for you last, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go first with Patreon user Chelsea, who has given us has anyone considered that New Mutants is actually the Ark of the Covenant? And if it gets released, all our faces will just melt off. Just saying, big love, Chels. I'm actually with that, but unlike the characters in Indiana Jones, I think I'd be, I'd, I'd die happy if I finally got to watch that. At this point, it's reached sort of an almost religious standpoint for me. So I'm ready, I'm ready to go. I'm New Mutants over Tenet, obviously. Hmm. It's not even a question. At least one of the directors isn't trying to kill, you know, half a million people in the United States. And our second Patreon <laughs> subscriber who has given us something to read is none other than Andrea Monagle. Mm. And this is what I have been tasked to read for you, Matthew. Warning, this is a spoiler for season one of Fargo. Martin Freeman's character died when the snowmobile he was riding broke through the ice in the middle of a frozen lake. He did not escape to be revived by lazy writers in some unknown future season. You do not need to see a dead body in a morgue to understand and accept that the character has died this six-year-old argument is now closed. All right, I respect the fact that Andrea is willing to pay pay good money to our writers in order to ensure that she gets the last word. But I, like we've been, ha- we have literally had this argument for six years. And if you die off camera, or if your death is alluded to but never confirmed, I feel like there's a chance you come back. So you know, I, I'm going to leave this up to our listeners. If you please respond to the Certified Forgotten handle on Twitter with whether you think Martin Freeman is dead or not at the end of Fargo season one. I have a feeling I know where you're going to lie, but uh, it'll make my wife very, very happy if you agree with her. So prove, to, I mean, you know, prove to me I'm wrong because I, I don't think I am. Also, just interact with us. Just yell at us. We, we, we like any kind of interaction. That's true. Except for you, Andrea. You're off limits now. You got your little your little story read here on the podcast. So you're done, son. You better hope we get some more uh, Patreon subscribers on that tier. Otherwise, we're going to have to go back there real quick. <laughs> I, I'd love it if she just made you read the same thing every free Over week. and over. The long game. Uh, So thank you to all of our patrons, except for Andrea. Let's get back to the episode. All right, welcome back. We're going to talk about today's film, which is, as if you haven't seen the title of the podcast episode on your phone already, Funky Forest, The First Contact. This is a 2005 Japanese film, and it's hard to explain it in a way that does it justice. So what I will say is this is a film by three Japanese filmmakers who come from a varying degree of backgrounds. They have a mixture of live action, comedy, animation, even some kaiju films on their resumes. And they have combined to create a two and a half hour 
uh, sort of a, a variety uh, movie, a movie that sort of lends into each of their different stylings and tells these interwoven, um, almost like a sketch comedy, but not quite uh, kind of telling of a universe. There are core sets of characters, a group of brothers, a group of business people at a weekend resort and a school, and they intersect and bounce off each other's in interesting ways. There's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of music, and there's actually a pretty fair amount of body horror as well. So Funky Forest, The First Contact, is not something that you're going to be able to easily articulate when you watched it. And if you look it up, you're going to find a lot of people have put it on their most what-the-fuck Japanese movie list ever, which I don't agree with that, but that's kind of the that's setting the stage for you. That's what you're going to get into here. So I want to start, Katie, by asking you, you said this was a movie, we were talking beforehand, you said this is a movie you haven't seen in a while, you finally got to watch it again, but it was one of the, like, the first one that came into your mind. What made you want to bring this to us? Well, I actually thought about it for a little while uh, before I picked Funky Forest, and once I decided that this was the one I wanted to do, I said, oh yeah, we absolutely have to do this one, because I was kind of thinking back, this is one from when I was a video store clerk. Uh, there was a time when I was working at two different video stores in Chicago. One is called Facets, and it's a pretty well-established, pretty, uh, I don't know, highbrow film library place. And one is another place called Odd Obsession, which RIP, they just recently closed uh, during these stay-at-home orders. And they were an independent video store full of people who just loved weird shit. Uh, one of my old co-workers, Ignati Vishnovetsky, wrote a very lovely obituary for Odd Obsession on AV Club. If you Google uh, Odd Obsession, Ignati Vishnovetsky AV Club, it'll come up. Uh, so you can find the, the And Odd Obsession is where I first saw this movie. It actually came out on DVD uh, in the late 2000s. And like I said, I was having a bit of a J-horror phase at the time. I was just really interested in this particular uh, type of cinema. So it came up and I was also also aware of the director because he had done a film called The Taste of Tea in 2004 that the best way to describe that it's it's sort of like an Ozu movie on mushrooms. Hmm. Like it's a really low key Japanese family drama, but it's got a lot of like strange, surreal touches to it. That sounds like that melts you into your couch pretty effectively. I like it. It's, it's similar to this one in that it's very low key and it takes its time, but uh, I find it just endlessly charming. I like The Taste of Tea a lot. And I like how you're describing another movie as something on mushrooms. And I'm so <laughs> curious to see how you describe this fucking movie then. Well, it's also on mushrooms. <laughs> it's like on double mushrooms okay. and they're laced with LSD. And also, you I don't even know, man. No, okay. I, I got to say that actually, because I want to I jump on what Donato said. Like you recommended this to folks. When you recommend it, like, what do you say? What's your, what's your hook? How do you describe it? Well, I'd only recommend it to somebody who I know was already sort of initiated into this type of film because, well, specifically someone who watches a lot of Japanese films as opposed to weird films, because I think to truly wrap your mind around Funky Forest, it helps to be familiar with us with a couple of different sort of Japanese um, cultural conventions. Uh, for example, there's two characters who are sort of a stand up comedy duo, and that's a common type of comedy in Japan and they're lampooning that and then all the high school sequences are kind of making fun of these sort of saccharine 80s and 90s Japanese high school movies which tend to be very sentimental and so they're kind of making fun of it by giving it a surreal twist um, but if I was to recommend it to someone at the video store I would say just put on a big joint 
And, you know, you can kind of come and go out of the room if you want to, but it's just something in the background that you can have on and it'll be really, and it'll be funny to the common person. But uh, to me, I love this movie. I sat and watched it again last night. I hadn't seen it since probably 2009. And I just, I just find it so charming and so fun and so funny. I laughed out loud so many times watching this movie. Yeah. I like that you brought up um, some of that cultural distinction because this is something obviously we talk about uh, a fair amount of international horror on this show because that tends to be the stuff that doesn't break through in America. Womp womp. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what, that's one of the things that sometimes, you know, the conversation always gravitates towards is those elements of cultural specificity. And as somebody that doesn't know Asian cinema particularly well, doesn't know Japanese cinema particularly well either, you know, like watching Funky Forest is, is an experience in recognizing that, that it is that there are inter, intertextual commentary that I am not getting. Right. But still liking the movie enough to sort of get that. You know, I think the the first observation I have about this just after watching it is, is it's something that does a really good job of not being inaccessible, which is a strange thing to say about a two and a half hour like variety, surrealistic fever dream. But it, mm-hmm. it's, it's accessible. It doesn't. You know, there's people that are like, oh, weird Japanese horror. I'm like, I don't think, I think you're letting, I think you're kind of blending and saying that like every, because it's Japanese, it's weird and vice versa. I'm like, no, there's a lot going on here. And I don't appreciate, I can't appreciate or understand all of it, but that, that's not a deterrent. There's so much, there's so much richness. I'm so glad you brought that up because there is this thing and I was, I think I was guilty of it to an extent when I was younger and maybe not quite as aware but there is something about when people say, oh, those Japanese, they're crazy. It's like, no, man, you just watched the like, you just watched a surreal comedy made in that country. You know, uh, when you brought up sketch comedy, the film that I would compare Funky Forest to very much is Greener Grass, the movie that came out last year, which is also sort of a series of loosely connected comedy sketches put together as a movie it's like if you watched greener grass and went those americans are fucking nuts they're all on acid all the time it's not like that it's just that it's just that there are some strange movies that came out of there sure but there's also but it's just that the the more conventional stuff doesn't really travel yeah i would the thing that came to mind with the sketch comedy is i found myself thinking more than once about kids in the hall i was like Mm -hmm. if you appreciate sort of these interwoven you know, like single concept episodes that that kind of have characters that pop up and repeat throughout all of it. And they might not always be laugh out loud funny, and they might just be like running with a premise that isn't going to work for you. But but there's like a heart and a spirit to it. You know, for me, as somebody that grew up in high school watching a lot of Kids in the Hall, I was like, I, I, this feels of a piece with that. Like if you like Kids in the Hall, you'll probably like Funky Forest. Maybe not all of it, but probably a bunch of it. And, um, you know, talking about cultural specificity, there's layers to this that, uh, you know, I wasn't aware of until I really like read up on the film a little bit to prepare for the podcast. Like, uh, I don't know how many people would recognize Hideaki Anno, the, the director of Neon Genesis Evangelion, but he's in this movie. Like, and if you are Japanese and you're really into anime, you would recognize him in it and kind of chuckle and go, oh, hey, it's that guy, you know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think for me, you know, I want to get to a point where we can talk about our favorite segments, I guess I would Mm -hmm. say, and like what really drew us in uh, in Funky Forest, because the biggest shock to me is, well, number one, Monogle messaged me right when I started it. And he's kind of like, I can't wait to see what you think about this movie at the end. Because I was doing the same thing to him for Zombie Ass. Because Zombie <laughs> Ass is very much not a Matt Monaco movie. 
So Monogle, <laughs> you know, he had finished Funky Forest already and was like, can't wait to see what you say about this. But I came around on it. I 100% think by the end I was transfixed is a really strange word to use for this kind of weirdness, but I, I was really into the oddity at the end of it. And to go even farther than Kids in the Hall, I think there's a blend of Tim and Eric, to even go back to what Katie was talking mm-hmm. about before and just mentioning mm-hmm. Tim and Eric, because the first couple of segments, and I would say really almost the first half of the movie is a lot tamer than the second half. And I think that's by nature because they want to lull us into this in a way. They're introducing these dialogue heavy, not anything really weird on screen, just the quote unquote hot spring vixens talking about drunk dudes riding pandas in the rain. And you're like, all right, this is weird. And then you hit the intermission. And after the intermission, the first thing you get is this fucking weird Teletubby guy with a fuzzy protrusion coming out of the front of him going, pull on me. And you're like, oh, okay, this is going to get interesting. And then all of a sudden there's a guy reaching in a giant anus and that's squirting and you're like, okay, so now it's going to get really weird. Donato, I'm sorry, I have to correct you. After the, after the first intermission, you, you may continue. Thank you. <laughs> this, is, this is correct. Good, good call, Matt. Well, yeah, what I was going to say is, uh, yeah, this movie, does, they call it an A-side and a B-side. And this is mm-hmm. a very musical movie also. Like you said, there's a lot of dancing. And one of the characters is a DJ. And there's a whole um, segment in the, in the much stranger second half where it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like this band of um, Captain Planet type women. And they have all these knobs in the forest and they're making noise music with all the sounds in the forest. And uh, so, yeah, it's very musical. And I think the A side and B side thing is deliberate that way. And I love how I love how that's your example of the weirdness when the segment right before that well, is a naked man strapped to a chair where his balls drop and you can flick him and he squirts milk and juice out of his nipples. It's specifically musical weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, going just on musical weirdness, I I can give you that. And actually, I, I do, I'm curious to hear from you guys because I, I do have an answer for this and I want to pose to the larger group. I mean, what is your favorite segment? And maybe it's a running segment, like if it's Guitar Brother, maybe that's all of his stuff. But like, what is what is the Funky Forest highlight for you guys? My favorite, I, I love Guitar Brother. It's one of my favorite. I, I just think it's so cute and fun. And uh, they introduce it at the beginning of the film. It's this recurring segment. They introduce them as the unpopular with women brothers. And it's these three guys. One of them is Tadanobu Asano, who is a very well-known Japanese actor, very famous. Uh, a lot of American people would probably know him from Ichi the Killer. He's the guy with the cuts in his cheeks in Ichi the Killer. And uh, and then the other actor is Susumu Terajima, who is not quite as well known over here, but he's a famous Japanese actor. And then their third brother is this little white kid who barely speaks Japanese and is eating chocolate bars the whole time. <laughs> and it's like these three brothers just hanging out. Tadanobu Asano is playing the guitar for the for the one brother and the other brother is practicing this sort of like no dance routine in the other room. And they're just like these extremely dorky guys who sort of form the, uh, by the way, it is. It does strain credulity that Tadanobu Asano that women don't want to talk to him. That's <laughs> that he needs to learn the guitar to talk to women. Yeah, you're like, no, no, yeah. no, that guy's fine. Yeah, you're like, no, 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 no. That man has never had problems talking to women. <laughs> but uh, but they sort of form like they're one of the recurring segments in the movie. And my absolute favorite part of the movie is uh, midway towards the end, probably about two thirds of the way through. Uh, the Guitar Brothers host a singles picnic. And they invite all the other men who have appeared in all the other segments throughout the movie 
to come to this singles picnic, promising them that there's going to be chicks there and then no chicks show up. And so it's just all this big band of dorky guys just getting drunk together in the park. And I find it really charming. I just think it's really fun. Well, I really, what I like about that segment, actually, and that recurring theme of Guitar Brother is exactly you get the introduction at the beginning where Guitar Brother is trying to learn guitar to get ladies and he plays just to just for that angle. And that's the first segment. So you think that's going to be the recurring thing every time he comes back. But in the second segment, he's just kind of like playing and the little white brother who is eating like candy or chocolate in every scene. And he's just playing. He's just playing for him. And they're Mm -hmm. just brothers having fun. And it's a really sweet moment of like the little brother being like, you're so good. This is great. And he'd be like, oh, well, thank you. And then the the third brother comes in. It's like, you're being very brotherly. And it just ends. And it's like, (laughs) that was fucking wholesome. What is happening here? Yeah, but uh, that's the stuff I really... I like the more chill hangout parts of this movie. Uh, The segment you mentioned with the the yellow guy pulling on the the little navel penis thing and then reaching into the machine and there's like a butt. And it it just because that segment in particular, if you Google Funky Forest, the first contact, a bunch of YouTube clips will come up and it's all that scene from the movie. And people, Mm -hmm. to speak to the weird Japan thing, people will kind of misleadingly be like, this is a normal movie in Japan. It's like, no, it's the weirdest part of a weird movie. The weirdest part of an already extremely weird movie. Like there is, this isn't even base value weird. This is like you've gone three steps above where the normal weird is for Japan. Yeah, I yeah, I agree like 100% there. Also, how many times did I get fooled into watching somebody get jerked off in this movie. <laughs> I feel like that happens multiple many times. times. Many, yeah. Many. Okay. I just want to make sure that wasn't me. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm horrified. I'm laughing. Also, should I feel violated right now? Because there is yeah. a smiling man, baby. And whatever tube is coming off the end of him is being stroked very vigorously. And he is smiling and what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of speaks to one of the recurring themes in this movie is just like loser dudes who can't get a date. And I feel like the jerking off stuff is kind of of a piece with that. Mm-hmm. It does go. It docks well. Yeah. It it all ties together. <laughs> um, But yeah, like uh, the thing is, you know, it does have I'm not going to say this is not a weird movie. It has a lot of really intensely weird parts. But a lot of it is just sort of a low-key hangout comedy with Guitar Brother and then with the Hot Spring Vixens you talked about before. Their segments are all just them. They're this like these three women friends. They're at a hot spring together for the weekend. And most of it is just them telling stories about weird shit that's happened to them. The other one's being like, what? No way. And then that'll be the end of the segment. I, I, I like the chill hangout comedy aspect of this film. That's my favorite part of it. What Katie brought up is is kind of what I responded to as well, which is super unsurprising if you've listened to this podcast. And if you've seen the film and listened to the podcast, you could probably pick the exact segments that Donald and I like the most. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of times with this sort of experimental surrealistic comedy, you know, the mistake that filmmakers and writers make is they go big to go big, right? Like they go, they have the intention of making the audience uncomfortable in order to elicit a reaction. And that's awesome. But th- they don't, they forget to do anything with their characters that makes any of it matter to them. And so a lot of times you're left with like weird, bizarre kind of stuff that is just weird and bizarre. And you're like, that was funny. And then later you're like, eh, like whatever, like I'll wait until I see the next YouTube clip. You know, um, I, I desperately want to see a uh, great choice. I'll never get to see that again, but that's another example of something that, that, you know, kind of pushes that a little bit. But what I like so much about funky forest and, and what really resonates with me throughout is that 
the entire experience for a lot of these characters is super mundane. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're having normal day-to-day -day conversations in the middle of the insanity that surrounds them. You know, they are, to Donato's point, they're jerking off men babies that are tied to a men baby tree, but then they're talking about like, are they mad at each other? Or is it okay that they talk too loud? Or, you know, they're celebrating these small victories in life that they have. And I think that that, that undercurrent of sort of like, just everyday average normalcy is what makes the surreal weird stuff really lock into place for me. And I think there's no better example than my favorite segment in the film is Takafumi's nightmare, which is mm -hmm. an entire dream sequence dance sequence that takes place on the beach where he, you know, there are these two giant speakers that are coming out of a car and he sort of hallucinates his way through these three or four different songs. He goes down and dances with some of the people that he sees on the beach. And he's also sort of harassed by these other creatures and characters that come out. But the entire thing is sort of this allegory for the relationship he has with Naughty, who is uh, a friend of his that he's sort of, you know, back then we would have called a friend zone, but wants to be in a relationship with, hasn't been able to get over the hump with her. And like all of this surreal dreamlike logic, the, the really good music and the incredible dance number stuff, all of that sort of is intercut with him kind of re trying to articulate why he's unhappy with Naughty and why like the relationship isn't working and why he feels like she's asking a lot of him. And again, it's like, it's boring. Like a guy likes a girl that doesn't like him back. Like every movie since the fucking beginning of time, this is the plot, but it's the banality of that kind of stuff that makes the weird imagery and the hybrid of animation and live action just shine so much more because the stakes are so low. But it's not a bitter movie. You know what I mean? No. We keep talking about these themes of, you know, kind of loser guys, but there, there's no bitterness to it. In fact, it's a joyful movie. There's a lot of dancing in it and a, and a lot of really it's fun, you know, and that's another thing that I enjoy about it. Yeah. So we've been talking about the the really heartfelt human elements of the film. Donato, <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> so what if I was going to blow your mind right now and say that. Takafumi's Nightmare was also my favorite segment. Hey! I was going to say, me and Monocle never agree here. And I, honestly, that was the first time in the entirety of the production where I was drawn into a segment. I'm like, okay, this is kind of what I signed up for. I was promised something weird and obscure and absurd. And, you know, the minute a wolf man comes out of a car and hands Takafumi an assault rifle and then starts dancing and you're like, yeah, okay. This is this is what I've signed up for. Um, but <laughs> so I will say, though, because, you know, that, that is your favorite and it might be my favorite, but I have another one on deck uh, to give love to in in lieu of being my second favorite is definitely. So I guess it's called. Hold on a sec. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. It's called Want to Go for a Drink. And it is definitely the first segment after that first uh, intermission where. This girl just walks into a hallway. It looks like she's dressed in schoolgirl attire. So you assume she's at school or something of this nature. And again, there's that yellow Teletubby looking whatever with a giant tail where his anatomy should be. And it just says, pull me. And she's like, the fuck? Like, she's just looking yeah. at this thing. And it's like, what are you talking about? And he's just like, pull me, pull me, pull me. And then so she pulls him. And then this man jumps out of nowhere wearing like short shorts and a very tight schoolboy's outfit and he just starts yelling stuff at her and that is when i realized okay this movie is going to earn every bit of its description that was given to me and also that's only about like i said half 
it's, it's really the halfway point because that intermission is actually split right down the middle. Mm-hmm. And this is a 150 minute movie. So yeah, you get the slower beginning, you get the conversations and, you know, slow in the way that it's comparable to the rest of the film. And then this segment where it just keeps escalating one by one, all of a sudden they look at her and they're like, show me your navel. And she's like, wait, what are you talking about? And then she's like, I won't do that. Then all of a sudden, like smash, is, like it smash cuts two seconds later and she just has her shirt up and it's just like, now put this in your navel. And it just goes worse and worse. A little man gets pulled out of the butt and then he starts, he's a sushi chef and he reads reports. I don't know, but holy fuck, it's weird and awesome. Yeah, this is a movie full of smash cuts to like two seconds later in the same scene. It's amazing. Well, you know, you talk about the the mundane and the weird together. One of the funniest parts of do you want to go for a drink is when the guy in the yellow suit and the guy in the too tight schoolboy uniform start fighting with each other. And they're like, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, no, it's OK. And then uh, the the schoolgirl's like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. It's in the dialogue. And she just goes, I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> yes. It's the perfect moment of encapsulating the audience as well, because she is speaking for every one of us when we're like, what is going on? And like, even the characters looking at the screen going, what is going on? It's a very communal bonding moment between audience and film. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> I want to ask you guys, um, talking about our favorite segments, uh, I want to ask both of you what you think about kind of the dance in this too, because... You know, knowing that this comes from people who are animators, who have a love of animation and therefore a love of motion, um, and knowing that there are so many dance numbers in this movie and kind of like the dance numbers all feel very much like a kind of a, a lack of self-consciousness and expression. Like what what did I, I was really moved by the dance in this movie. Tell me what you guys thought of, of the scenes where the characters break into dance. I liked the the final dance when you get Takafumi and Note. And it does like a, a reverse where we go back to an earlier scene and they're just kind of laying on top of one another. And I, I think it looks like Note is trying to get him off of her. So she's like, oh, look, a UFO outside. And he goes, runs outside. He's like, oh, I've been tricked. And then he starts dancing at like, that's just the, the way this film goes. He just starts dancing. And then she goes out there too. And there's that ending moment in their arc where they're both dancing together, both expressing this they're in line with one another. They're in the same step and rhythm and motion. And it's oddly sweet, just like you said, Monagle. I mean, this is this is an act of expression. It's an act of romance and it's an act of all this stuff. And to see it represented in a musical and choreographed form, it's something that could have been done in dialogue. But why do it in dialogue when you can have two characters dancing together and to show something visually, a visual you know, representation is just stronger. Yeah, and before I... Before I let you talk, Katie, I just want to add too that like the dances in this are not particularly complicated. Like I think the three of us could go out and do any of these dances with like a good hour's worth of practice. It's not professional style choreography and that makes it all the better. I think if this movie played at, you know, like if it was a new movie that it played at Fantastic Fest last year or something like that, people would have learned the dances and done the dances because they are very mm-hmm. doable. And I also love that last scene that you were talking about, Donato, because it to me, it really encapsulates, you know, earlier, a lot of the dance sequences have been fantastic and been in dreams and have not been very realistic but they bring it home to just these two kids hanging out in the backyard dancing together at the end and it sort of encapsulates that blend of the very strange and the very mundane that the film gets its comedy from yeah and your favorite scene the the picnic scene i mean the dance in that when you know you Mm -hmm. expect this character to fall on his face and he breaks out maybe the best dance of the movie and you're like oh okay all right 
Yeah, he's a really good dancer. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he's a great dancer. And all the other guys are cheering him on, and it's it's very wholesome. I think that word came up before. It's very wholesome. Yeah, and I think that's the, the recurring theme is we keep getting these segments that can veer two ways. They all come, you know, to a crossroads, and a certain kind of film would probably always take the meaner and darker route, and that's where they would find its comedy, and that's where they would find a meaner streak, I would say. But Funky Forest always remains upbeat. It always takes the other route. It always goes the way of like, you know what? What if these characters actually do pull it off and they all are just really happy with one another and they start patting each other on the back? And it's like, we don't see that enough. And it's kind of really nice and fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask, and maybe this is even more of an editing question, Katie. You know, when we watch something like this, this is obviously two and a half hours long. There's an A side and a B side. There's a lot of ideas. And not all of it is going to work the same for other people. You know, is this one of those movies that feels better in hindsight when we have the ability to sort of like smooth out some of the skits that didn't work for us and really highlight the ones that we did? Because I feel like I, I feel like I like have I like this in hindsight a lot more than I did while watching it because now I get to just think about this the particular scenes, you know, maybe the ninety minutes worth of movie there that really really super worked for me, and I get to kind of like smooth off the other parts. Is this is this one of those movies that like as we get more distance from it, we're just going to kind of condense it to the stuff that we really loved and like it even more. Yeah. I think uh, something that I think about when thinking about funky forest is a few years ago, a friend of mine who's an editor did something he called inland empire, the brevity cut, which was when he cut down inland empire to what, you know, blasphemous of course, but he cut it down. He cut inland empire down to a 90 minute movie. And, (laughs) and it was a lot, it was more watchable that way. I'm very sorry, David Lynch, but, uh, and funky forest. He's not a listener. You're okay. (laughs) I think funky forest. Uh, I think after the picnic scene that we talk about, you could lose a lot of the last half hour of the film. I think, I think this film's, kind of starts to run out of steam after two hours. And if you cut about half an hour off of it, it would be, you know, it'd be more accessible maybe because it is intimidating to hear that it's a largely plotless skit film that's two and a half hours long. And I think two would be an easier sell. And I think that there is a little bit of padding there towards the end. See, and that's so funny because I think it tells a lot about our own appreciation of cinema because I would cut the first half an hour from the beginning. I would leave all that end stuff in and I would cut the more, the more conversational hot springs stories and Ooh, uh, things no, of that no, nature. No. I, I, but it, maybe not the exact hot springs, but for me, I was monocle to your point. I was really feeling that first half an hour. I was sitting there going, Holy shit. I got two more hours of this. Are you kidding me? And if it had stayed at that level and it had continued with that kind of uh, filmmaking, I probably would be singing a very different tune right now. But the fact that it does pick up, I think if it picks up a little quicker and we get to Takafume's dream, nightmare, whatever you call it, maybe 20 minutes earlier than we do, I think that introduces a little more pep and a little more energy into the film that, again, for me, this is just me, I don't think was there in the beginning as much. Yeah, I mean, it could it could lose about a half an hour regardless. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really enjoy the fact that like this is this is one of those movies where my brain does that work for the film. You know, it kind of like mm-hmm. if I can if I can make my way through it, if I can commit to two and a half hours of, of a film that is loose, that, you know, doesn't have a, a clear defined plot, isn't going to take me on a point A to point B journey. Then like as I gain a little bit of distance from it, the stuff that I liked 
sharpens in focus, the stuff that I didn't like fades away. And what I'm left with is a, a movie that I have to explain to people like, no, 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 two and a half hours. And yes, there's like the butt pucker that you heard Donato talk about on the episode, but like, it's really heartfelt. And, you know, it just, it crystallizes. I, I love our ability to sort of edit a movie afterwards and, and really like make an even better film in our head than the one we watched, which isn't to say, of course, the funky force isn't good, but like, I have felt myself doing that all day long. I have like gone over it again and again and again. And every time I think about what I liked, like the movie gets a little shorter in my head and I, it gets mm. a little better too. Isn't to say that it would lose anything or gain anything if you took parts out of it, but I'm doing that work on the back end. I feel like there must be something mischievous on the filmmakers part there in the sense that, you know, they knew that they were making a movie that everyone was going to remember the butt pucker part. That's also very heartfelt. I feel like there's a little bit of impishness there on the filmmakers part mm -hmm. that they were deliberately putting these two things together, knowing that it would be impossible to describe. And I think honestly, the best representation of what this film is comes from the film itself, the selling marketing material. I'm looking at IMDb right now and it's byline is basically an outrageous collection of surreal, short attention span non sequiturs, largely re revolving around Guitar Brother, his Randy older sibling, and the pair's portly Caucasian brother. And just the fact that they were able to put surreal number one definitely gets it, but then you get to short attention span and non sequiturs. So it's not even calling itself a skit compilation. It's basically saying right out front, listen, this film is all over the place. We're just trying some things. Short attention span means that we're going to jump around a bunch and you're either with us or you're not. And I, that honesty is a little refreshing because that that is exactly what this film is. It's not selling anything. It's not. Yeah, they're just having fun, you know. Have you, um, I know that the, the one of the three directors, Sunichiro Miki, went on to direct sort of a spiritual successor or direct sequel to this called The Warped Forest. Have you seen that, Katie? Um, do, you, do you have any insights into whether, if you like this movie, if, if they should seek that one out as well? Uh, no, I have not seen The Warped Forest. I'm mostly familiar with uh, Katsuhito Ishii. He is sort of the um, the main impetus behind the film. And uh, I think if you like this film, you should watch his film, The Taste of Tea, that I was talking about earlier. Mm. Well, you know, normally we... On this part of the podcast, we'll talk about what um, what reason why this movie may have fallen through the cracks a little bit. Um, I don't think that this is an accessible sell in the United States for a lot of different reasons, but I want to ask what you think could make this sort of a cult classic. You know, the, the movie clearly has its fans. There are the YouTube compilations that you mentioned. Uh, I know that I'm going to be putting Takafumi's Nightmare into heavy rotation in my own YouTube channel. But, you know, like you can go on Reddit and there are people that say that this should be in the Criterion Collection. There's a great thread that I found on there. So this is this is the sort of film that a lot of like a very small but very diehard audience is into. You know, does it ever have a chance sort of crossing over and becoming kind of a, a bigger cult classic for audiences, do you think? I actually do think that when I think that maybe the world might be ready when the 20th anniversary comes around in 2005, I think in particular um, now that, you know, 20 years later, this film did play at Fantastic Fest back in 2006 in the very early days of Fantastic Fest. It played Fantasia in 2006 in the early days of Fantasia. And I think that have, you know, um, a few years from now, once 20 years has gone by, people will receive it. I think people would receive it very well if it got a revival screening at, you know, a festival like that in a few years. Mm. You mean 2025, right? <laughs> you said 2005, so I want to make yeah. sure we're not going back in time. <laughs> oh, no, it came out in 2005, and then the 20th anniversary would be 2025, excuse me. Yeah. Nope, totally fine. And I mean, I agree with that in a certain light, because I'm trying to think of 
how you can get American audiences to see this film. And I, I really believe you would need an Alma draft house setting and it would mm-hmm. fit into a weird Wednesday kind of programming slate. But yep. the only issue with that is once again, the time. I mean, asking yeah. someone to sit down for two and a half hours and do this weird Wednesday itself doesn't start till nine 30. That means you're in the theater until midnight. At least. It's, it's a huge ask for people. And I think it's going to be a huge ask to get people to want to sit through this. And for me, again, if you have a, if you have a viewer who is in my mentality and also they're not a film critic because me, I'm always going to finish a film. If I start it, it's going down. That's just me as a critic and that's what I'm going to do. But for a general audience member, I struggle to be sitting next to someone who's not digging this film immediately and whether or not they're going to like some of the later stuff once it gets to the absurdity that they're expecting, I don't think they're going to sit around long enough. So I think those are the, I think those are the strikes against it, but if it was going to get that cult Blu-ray appeal, it needs it. Cause I think that's the way I think it's got to come out on home video first. I think it's got to get a push somehow mm. there. And if people discover it there first, then they'll go, all right, listen, I watched the whole thing. I promise friends, we're going to go see this in person. Just sit through the first 30 minutes and it's going to get fucking weird. Well, it's funny. Um, I think this is an ideal two o'clock Fantastic Fest movie. This is the perfect afternoon Fantastic Fest movie because people will people will give it a chance and people will stay the whole time. And it's low key enough that, you know, it's not a late night because it is very low key. But I think it's a perfect afternoon genre festival Yeah, and I think that speaks to a little bit of why festivals are so important in a way. And I did want to get here eventually. And yes, we're using Funky Forest to deliver this message, or at least I am. But there are a lot of festival, uh, a lot of films that we are lucky enough, myself, Katie, Monocle, all the film critics who go to travel for festivals. And we are allowed to see these things that are international and that are going to be hard sells in the States. And that might not even get distribution because, again, this doesn't even have U.S. distribution. And that is what makes a festival like Fantastic Fest, Fantasia, one of these oddball genre festivals so incredibly important themselves because it gives people a taste of something they wouldn't see every day. It's something they're probably not going to see every day. So it, it this is just a festival plug, but it's just one of those things where if you do have a local festival, if you do have a way to attend Fantasia, Fantastic once they reopen and you can do it for a year, I highly, highly suggest it because you will find things that no one else will probably even see and they can be yours. And when they come out, you get that weird feeling of, or not weird feeling, you get that amazing feeling of like, oh man, I can show this to so many people. Yeah. And in the meantime, I mean, if you're curious about whether you want to watch this movie, I would say go on YouTube and watch a few different, watch a few different kinds of clips. Watch the weird clip with the, that we've been talking about and then look up a Guitar Brother clip and then you know, just look, watch three or four clips from the movie because there are lots of them on YouTube. And if you like three or four of them, then, you know, um, the whole thing is also on YouTube. You can watch the entire movie on YouTube because it is currently out of print in the U.S. and it's kind of hard to find otherwise. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just close on what Donato was saying too, you know. This is, if you have the opportunity to see movies like this, see them in theaters. And it's not just because, you know, the, you might not be able to see it any other way because of distribution deals and things like that. But, you know, I would, I think as much as I enjoyed this movie, um, as much as I surprised myself by enjoying this movie, it was difficult for me to take the distractions of my life out of the picture and kind of sit down and watch it. 
the movie theater allows you to have kind of a one-on-one experience with the movie that you just can't have in your home. I don't care how big your television is. I don't care what kind of a study you have or what kind of a t- TV room you set up. You're just never going to be able to focus on a film, give a film your undivided attention in quite the same way as you will in a movie theater when, of course, movie theaters open back up again, if movie theaters open back up again. So if they're in that future, you do see the weird stuff at a festival, go see that. Go see stuff that you can that you know won't get theatrical distribution that you think won't get theatrical distribution in the United States because that's the stuff probably that requires a bit more focus that requires a bit more attention and if you are going to pass up on that to go see I'm, I mean whatever coming to Netflix in two week movie is like you'll see that anyways these kind of movies the really long stuff the stuff that isn't from your culture or isn't you know are, are from societies or cultural differences that you're not used to the more you can give yourself over to that and the more focused you can be on watching it the better your experience will preach that's all that's all i gotta say i agree (laughs) right on (laughs) yeah sorry i get like i figure i do that like once every five or six episodes where i get really up in arms about like see it in a movie theater put your phone down so this was this was the time for me to do that i'm good for another five or six episodes all right katie well um Thank you for bringing us something that that was just one of our more fascinating conversations to date. Um, and I know that like, I know you're always out there and you're recommending really good stuff. So if people want to follow you on social media, if they want to familiarize themselves with your writing and see the kind of stuff that you're watching and recommending, what's the, you know, promote yourself. What are the best places for people to go? Well, I'm on Twitter at rife with Katie, avclub.com. I have a byline pretty much every day of the week on AV Club. Uh, I, like I said, I do film coverage a lot, and I also do, to a lesser extent, but I do regular TV coverage, regular music coverage, generalist in film, but horror and genre is where my heart lies. Uh, if you want to know what I'm watching, you can follow me on Letterboxd. Just look up Katie Rife. That's where I put my my pithy off the cuff late night review <laughs> is on Letterboxd. So, um, yeah, you can look me up on there, too. And while I add you on Letterboxd, Donato, will you please promote yourself to our viewers? Why, of course I can. You can follow Matt Donato on or at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd. You can see my byline on places. Right, well, right now, I don't even know at this point because the whole situation is making it a little hard to sell things. So uh, usually it's in slash film collider, blade, disgusting dread central, go down the list and I write for them. But until they get their budgets back, it's, it's a little, little dicier out there. Oh, so buddy, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey, it's how this all goes. There's a lot of people got a lot worse than me. So I, I ain't no skin off my back. I'll still be uh, cranking out my horror reviews. And that's, that's at least the least I can do. <laughs> and the merry hour. Don't forget the merry hour. Right, I do a live stream with Perry Nemiroff every Friday after work for PST Seven EST, where uh, we talk about news, we talk about film stuff, and then uh, we play each other in beer pong and see who's going to be the victor that day. Fun. Yeah, I've, as some of you already know, I've had the pleasure of being one of his guests. I'm not good at beer pong. We shall talk about this no more. <laughs> the end of that. I can talk about the game. I hit seven cups and you hit zero, and we lost, but that's fine. Seven isn't ten, Donato. You still cost us a victory in my book. Oh, fuck you. Thank you so much. As for my as for myself, you can follow me on social media, Lab Splice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. You can follow me on Letterboxd, whatever my name is on there. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, and as always, if you are enjoying this show, and I can't see why you wouldn't be, you know, take a moment out of your day, leave us a review. It really helps not only to give us a little bit of motivation, because a lot of times it's Donato and I working in a bubble and wondering if people are liking what we're saying out there. It's just the fact of producing content on the internet. You never really know. So not only does it 
serve as a nice little cookie for all the hard work that we do, but it also will serve to let us know if there's something we're doing you don't like. We want that kind of critical feedback. So thanks for thanks for that in advance. Leave us a review on Spotify or, or Apple Podcast. Katie, thanks so much for coming on. That was a that was a fun fucking movie. I'm so glad I watched that. I'm so glad you liked it, and I'm so happy you had me on. Thank you so much. Of course. Donato will take us off as only Donato can. Motherfucking team and win. <sighs> oh, I hate it.